welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there, everybody. Today, I have a really interesting conversation for you with my guest, Carrie Jarislow, international best-selling author, intuitive and conscious relationship coach. Carrie Jarislow teaches people the tools to relate consciously to themselves and others. She believes that when we learn and accept who we truly are, we are able to be more authentic in our relationships with others. This authenticity brings an unparalleled sense of joyfulness and fulfillment to our lives as a whole. In 2022, she began her podcast, Relationship Diversity Podcast, where she aims to explore, question, and celebrate all aspects of relationship structure diversity from solo amory to monogamy to polyamory and everything in between. This is an inclusive space, giving people the permission to design their unique relationships from the knowledge and acceptance of their unique selves. She has been on NBC, PBS, The CW, featured in Forbes, Thrive Global, Winston-Salem <laughs> Journal, not Gerbil, Prevention, and Newsweek, and has been interviewed by Marianne Williamson, Go All In TV, The List TV, and many others to discuss the ideas in her coaching, as well as in her first book, Why Do They Always Break Up With Me? <laughs> Which that is a really, right there, I'm like, we could really talk about that. So yeah. welcome, Carrie. I'm so glad you're here. Oh, thank you, Jen, for having me. It is an honor to be here with you. I can't wait to dive in. So I always love to start at the very beginning with just a little bit of a backstory about you as a younger person. Obviously, you're an intuitive. And so do you identify as an empath? And how does having sort of sensitivity, extrasensory perception, how has that affected you? So like, I just always love starting there. Yes, stories are powerful. And mine starts as the youngest of four children. I Mm. have three older brothers. So I was the youngest and the girl. And my first 12 years were very secure. I felt like all my needs were met. My parents seemed very available for me. My mother was an incredible mother who cared for us kids, always had hot piping meals on the table. And my father seemed to go off to work and provide for the family as far as I knew as a preteen. At 12 years old, though, everything shifted and my parents went through a very nasty divorce. And so going from one day of never seeing my parents ever argue to what felt like overnight a war zone was life changing. And I remember 
being so scared that everything that I was able to hold on to before that time was just pulled out from under me. My two oldest brothers were out of the house for the most part in college. My other brother and I were really left to navigate this and to, and we felt very protective of our mother. We didn't really understand everything that was going on. And that was where I felt like I was pulled out of my own little world. I was a very creative young girl very artistic, creative, into theater, the arts. And it was at that moment where everything was, I was pulled out of my own little world and realizing that there were a lot of things going on outside of me. The one thing I remember that I never knew was an empath thing to do until many, many decades later was I remember my mother, who was a stay-at-home mom, had to go and work for the first time at Neiman Marcus, where she worked in a very competitive department. Mm -hmm. And I would sit with her on the big king size bed, counting up all of the receipts that she would sell and we would celebrate and I would feel happy as she felt happy. But then in the holidays, let's say January would come along And all the receipts, and I just have such a visceral memory of the receipts with the yellow, I mean, I'm sorry, the red text that would be all of the returns and feeling her disappointment and feeling her sadness and wanting and feeling like it was my role to be the one that was her cheerleader and to support her at 13, 14 years old. Yeah. Taking on a lot of her pain. And sorrow, especially in the competitive nature where she was just a very heart-centered person and wanted everyone, you know, was everyone's mother and how much she got hurt by some of the salespeople around there. So that was the time when I felt like I took on a lot of her pain. So moving forward through my teenage years, I remember feeling very different from my friends Because they would party even at 15, 16 years old, and everything was very jovial for them, where things felt very heavy in my life. And I felt very alone in that 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. As I moved through to college, I started to meet people who were, I think, more sensitive, more artistic, more compassionate. And really found my tribe in the theater world, in the theater department, and also in the alternative dance department. This was in the yes. 80s. Yes. <laughs> so new wave music, mm-hmm. everything that was outside of what I had grown up to think as conventional, normal, traditional. And I was in theater. I majored in theater, moved right up to New York City. New York City in the 90s and the early 90s was the hub of all things alternative. And this was the time where I needed to search for what I was interested in. There was the internet was just starting, but I remember searching all around New York City for alternative, for yoga, for astrology, for all of these non-physical 
ideologies, methodologies, systems, and just being so intrigued. And like I was finding myself as I was doing Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. This was when this book, A Woman's Worth from Marianne Williamson came into my hands and I was just blown away by that. That was my spiritual awakening. And so a friend of mine and I wanted to get a psychic reading. This was 1995. So we got connected to this man in California. We were in New York City who had the most amazing intuitive reading. And he was the one that really started talking to me about intuition, empath, all of this kind of stuff. It started all making sense to me. And interestingly enough, this was the man that I connected with and we hooked up at a Neil Donald Walsh (laughs) Conversations with God workshop in 1996. He was in Santa Cruz and I was in New York City and we had started talking. He said it was right at the heyday of Conversations with God. So he said, do you want to come out to California and do this workshop with me, Neil Donald Walsh? And I said, sure. We went out there. There was like 30 or 40 people. It was way long ago. And anyway, we hit it off and he proposed to me by the end of that trip. Yeah. So we got married. And so I began my six-year marriage to a psychic who was trained at the Berkeley Psychic Institute in California. That was a trip. And I learned so much about intuition from him. Mm -hmm. That was kind of, I would say, like the real masterclass of intuition. And that was the moment that I realized that I was an empath because as he was teaching me intuitive reading, he very much, he was a clairvoyant. So he very much talked about it as seeing things on a screen, right? (laughs) right? And he would give me all these tools about roses and all this kind of stuff that he learned. And I felt lesser then because my visual ability was not strengthened. My strength was in my feeling. Yeah. And it was how I directed too. I would direct by feeling what the character went through and then relating that to actors that I worked with. So anyway, when I started reading about empath, it was like, oh, my whole mind was like, oh, this is how I access my intuition. That was the beginning of, I would say, my really strong awareness that I was an empath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and you just touched on something that I think is so incredibly important about the distinction between how somebody with, you know, because the way I see it is empaths, intuitives, psychics, and mediums all have extrasensory perception. We're all pricking things up that are beyond the ordinary seen thing. But so often it's like you have a psychic and it's like they have clairvoyance, but it is that like they see it, but they know they're seeing something outside of themselves. Whereas, you know, for those of us as empaths, if we're getting something clairvoyant, a lot of times it's like we might even see something, but we're going to see it through our own lens or filter. And, you know, I had a prophetic dream when I was my first prophetic dream. I was nine years old. Mm. But what was so fascinating about it, and only in recording all kinds of podcasts did I really understand the distinction, I dreamed my own mom died. I saw it through my lens. I saw it through, like, I saw the event, but I saw the event as if it was happening to me. And I think that, whereas if I had been just 
purely psychic and clairvoyant, I would have seen my friend's mother and my, my friend and my friend's mother and, you know, her at her deathbed. I would not have had the dream as if it was my own. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that is for those of us who are empaths that adds a whole other level of confusion because it's like, if you're feeling it or you're seeing it, but you're seeing it through your own filter and you're not, you don't have the luxury of just being able to look at the big white screen in front of you and see and be like, Oh, you know, kind of minority report moving all the things around and just being like, Oh, there's your, that's the reason why you got this thing. It's just such a different experience. So I love that you're bringing that out. Yeah. And I, I think part of my evolution as an empath, specifically doing it as my work is to be able to distinguish what is mine and what is someone else's. Exactly. That is such a journey that luckily I had a great mentors who have helped me understand and navigate this unweaving of my stuff and someone else's stuff, because it's really challenging to do this work professionally and not be able to separate. It doesn't work well. And I think that it creates a lot of disharmony. It had created a lot of disharmony within my body when it was so mixed and intertwined and I couldn't unravel it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you just, you just articulated um, one of the first questions. I mean, I ask two questions and teach my students to do to, you know, to start with two things. First, the question, is this mine? Mm-hmm. And then the second question, which inevitably, because usually it's like, yes, and, um, and then the second question is what's mine, what's not mine, mm-hmm. because that ability to recognize what's mine, what's not mine. And I can only imagine that as uh, if somebody who specializes in relationships and specializes in, in talking about living an authentic life in an authentic relationship in the form you want it to be in that, you know, being able to really master your, your empathic nature is so incredibly essential. I mean, especially when we start talking about polyamory and the Mm -hmm. fact that you're not even talking about just like getting the feedback loop of one person, but the feedback loop coming from multiple people, that's just a whole other kettle of fish. It is. It is so important. And I think it is a lifelong journey because I've been doing this for almost 25 years. And there are still moments where I'm not a hundred percent certain what is mine and what is another's. And I don't know that it's always mutually exclusive because even if a certain issue is my partner's, there is something in it for me. Yes. That is working for me to do my own healing and to do my own questioning. So it does take a lot of self-reflection and yes, and built in time into my life and that it is important enough for me to spend valuable time in that self-reflection of what is mine. And even if maybe that particular issue isn't mine, what is it plugging into within me that allows me to look at something within me that is ready to be brought to the surface and healed and released? Absolutely. You're preaching to the choir. (laughs) I want to go back. So you mentioned that 
You mentioned that you were married to this psychic intuitive person. Um, and it sounds like you said, you know, it's like a masterclass. I think it sounds like boot camp or something like mm-hmm. you're just really in it. Um, and you guys were married for six years. I'm curious, like as an empath married to a psychic, what were some of the challenges that came up for you around being in a partnership with a psychic? I mean, obviously you were, you stayed for six years and then left. So it was not necessarily fully aligned for you. Yeah. Well, I'll say that my first husband's name was Matthew. And when we met, he met me in a space of what I needed in that moment. What I needed in that moment was to experience someone who really wanted to be with me because as my book is titled, Why Did They Always Leave Me? I experienced that a lot. I was replaying the relationship with my parents over and over again. And so he showed up as such a strong connection, past life connection for sure. Mm -hmm. And we had such a strong friendship and we had that throughout our whole relationship throughout the divorce and post-divorce up until his early passing at the age of 44. So yeah. And that that's a whole story in and of itself to answer your question. The challenges were that because he was psychic, there was a lot of me that expected him to read my mind. Uh-huh. <laughs> this so this was this was the expectation, but then at the same time it was connected to my inability to communicate directly because of my fear that if I did he would leave me. So uh-huh. it was really meeting those pictures and those wounds that I had. And so it was like this kind of perfect storm of unhealthy communication. I never learned how to communicate, for one. Then I was scared that anytime I communicated how I truly felt, the guy would leave me. There's that. Then tied with him being an intuitive psychic, well, he should just be able to read my mind. And that created this perfect storm that, you know, that was this dynamic between us that was not healthy in terms of an intimate relationship. Oh, preach. I, my, I, my husband, it took, I think I was about five years into my marriage when I realized how bad I was at asking for what I needed. And Mm -hmm. because I came, I grew up, my parents, my father is a social worker or was a social worker. My mother is psychotherapist. I grew So I grew up with like people who, and my father's father was like a psychiatrist, like very articulate, very communicative. And I thought I was a really good communicator. And it wasn't until I'd been in my partnership for a couple of years that I really started to realize how bad I was at asking for what I needed and just how avoidant I was in being direct with asking for things. And, um, you know, it's so amazing. There's nothing quite like the, the, the school of relationship to help you discover where your growing edges are. But yeah, in our partnership, um, my, you know, David will often say to me, I'm not a brain reader because, you know, and the irony is I have a lot of psychic ability, but even with a lot of psychic ability, it's like, we still have to communicate with each other. But I think you're right. That's so often. And I've absolutely, oh God, I just remembered a story about, I had a friend who was a cancer 
And at one point she was really upset about something and I didn't know. And I said, I said, you know, are you upset about something? And she's like, yes. And I was like, what's going on? She said, you know, and it's like that expectation that somehow if we're feeling intense feelings, other people should know that we're feeling intense feelings. Yeah. And I think this is actually a challenge for empaths because we do know when other people are feeling intense feelings, even if they're hiding them. And so I think that we imagine that everybody else is also going to be able to sense and know if somebody's, if, if we are having an intense emotion internally, even if we're not showing it and we're masking it, I think because we're so aware of other people's feelings, we assume that other people are going to be picking up our feelings too. I don't know if that rings true for you. Oh, yeah. And I'll say that in my relationships, I do always feel I can always sense something's up. And at the same time, I don't always translate it correctly because it's right. like I have this filter of my shit right in front of me. And I'm like, they're upset. And then it's coming through this filter of what did I do? Did I mess up? Because my, you know, things that I'm working on is I mess things up. I'm not good. I'm not good enough. What have I done? It's my fault. These are things I'm continually healing. So inevitably, when I see, oh, my partner is upset, I don't translate it correctly, which is, this is something I've really been learning in the last year, specifically asking, I feel that you're upset. Can you explain to me from your perspective why you are so I'm not filling in all the holes with my past experience <laughs> to make the story all work with my stories, my wounds, because that's what we do, right? We have our stories and when there are gaps, we'll fill it in with what our past experience is. Because as humans, we need to make meaning of absolutely everything. <laughs> yeah. And if we don't have the data, we're going to fill it in. Yeah, I have a, so one of the things that I, we sort of developed as a way to communicate, and I tend to do this a lot more than, than my husband does this because he tends to sort of have like, I don't know, like, like weather patterns with his moods where he'll be going through something and he'll just be kind of broody or something. And so one of the things that we learned to do and I learned to do early on was to say, I'm imagining that you're angry with me. Is that true? Mm. Or I'm imagining that you're really upset right now or upset with me because usually it's like, I think he's pissed at me. And I have found saying, I'm imagining that you are, is a really good way of not being like, you seem it, you know, like like you're pissed what's going on but just like i'm imagining you're upset and you know can i get a reality check here and what i discovered was so frequently he'd be like yeah i am angry or yeah i am really upset about this but it has nothing to do with you i mm -hmm. just got a phone call from a client who's annoying the crap out of me right now or you know like i just found out about this thing or you know like any number of things but I found that just like that reality check of being like, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm imagining this is going on or I'm sensing this is going on. What's really happening here? You know, am yeah, I that statement is so good because yeah. it is inviting exactly. when yes. we, you know, when we're on the defensive and we're like, you are doing this, the energy is out and people will just instinctively 
go on defense. Exactly. But if you're inviting them in, it's like you're opening your space. Well, and you're being vulnerable. Yes. You, you know, I'm, I'm imagining you're angry with me is a really different thing than you're angry with me, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So you and I, before we jumped on, we were talking about the idea, like one of the components and we were talking about polyamory and the idea of multiple partnerships and everything, but also about as empaths, the pressure to, you know, try to fit in the pressure to try to do things the right way and kind of that intersection as well as the fact that so often as empaths, we are outliers and we are called to go in a different direction. And so I know that you were saying that, you know, your family situation is not necessarily your cookie cutter relationship. Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk about just kind of like the dance between following our authentic selves in relationship and the pressure as an empath to do that, as opposed to, as well as just the, the heart's desire and the call to like follow what's really aligned and true. Yeah. I've always been rebellious and it's shown in many different ways when I was young. I think my choices to go into theater and to work professionally in theater, even though my father was, I, we, we went through a massive healing after my divorce, which was so beautiful, but he was kind of always before that my litmus test of of like rebellion. You know, if he ever said, I don't think you should do it. Usually that was my sign that I was going to do it. And one of those was moving to New York city. He's like, I don't think you should move to New York city. I don't think you should major in theater. And I was like, well, then that means I'm doing it. And I did end up moving to New York city. I got involved with the show blue man group and became their first casting director and one of their resident directors of their Vegas show. And, you know, I, I feel like you, you know, he said, I shouldn't do it. And I said, I'm going to show you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I want to just say one thing about one thing my mom did when I was 14 years old that I think set me up to follow my own inner truth was it, this is just such an incredible thing that she did. I tried to bring with my own kids. We were driving to an audition. It was my first professional audition. I was 13 years old and it was a 30 minute drive. And I got so scared. And I said, mom, I, I want to turn around. I don't think I can do this. And she said to me, I will turn around if you want me to, it's your decision. That was a huge moment because she left it to me to make the decision. Yes. And I feel that that served me throughout my whole life. It served me through being able to say, no, I'm going to major in theater. Mm-hmm. I'm scared about it, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to marry this person that I've only known <laughs> for about a month. We're going to, and he's a psychic and he's so non-traditional, but I still feel really called to it. I'm going to do it. Then after my divorce, I entered into a relationship with a man who has also going through a divorce who had confided in me. He was on his own spiritual journey and he confided in me that he had cheated on his wife so many times during their marriage. 
that would have terrified me before my healing. But Mm -hmm. after my healing, that was like, I'm going to own this. I'm going to do this my way. And so I said to him, I will, I want to be in relationship with you. I think there's something there, but I will not take dishonesty. Mm -hmm. So let's just be open in our relationships. If you want to be with another woman, all I ask is that you tell me. Yes, yes, yes. That was very empowering for me and a very empowering moment. And it was the moment that I said, I don't have to live the way that society tells me I should live. I get to make this up. Mm-hmm. And so we that relationship lasted for about 18 months. I learned that was like my relationship to learn about communication from mm-hmm. that experience. And I met my current husband and we came into our relationship with one very fundamental agreement. And that was that we always question societal programming and tune into ourselves to determine how we want our relationship to evolve. Yes, yes, yes. And that has always been the foundation of our now 17-year marriage. And so, you know, we started our relationship in a monogamous relationship because that's what we felt called to do. Mm -hmm. We then started to have children. We felt strongly that we wanted to create a safe and solid container for our children up to a certain age. And it wasn't until our youngest went to kindergarten that things just started to open up a little bit for us. And then we started revisiting this conversation about what, what about stretching things. We've always felt that we were capable of loving more than one person. And there is so much societal programming that just infiltrates the cells of our psyche that we don't even know about. And so being in this adventure into a new way, a diverse way of being in relationships has allowed me to, and him, I know, to go very like minutially into what did we grow up with? What is this mononormative, you know, cultural programming? And it's still happening to this day. And we've been in this adventure for three and a half years. It's still continuing yeah. To, yeah. to come in of like, oh, wow, I didn't, be- I can't believe that I believed that. And I don't know, like, do I feel jealous or do I not? Am I just told that I should feel jealous? Because yes. I really don't feel it in my body. And for me, being an empath, that is my barometer. Mm-hmm. I really don't feel it, but I kind of think I maybe should. I don't know. Right, um, right. So it's been quite an adventure. Yes. Oh, Carrie, you are just saying so, there are so many touch points in in everything that you're saying that I was just like opening doors and I'm just looking at all these different rooms and being like, oh, we could talk about this and this and this and this. <laughs> I just love how you're talking about all of the assumptions, all of the ways that we don't even realize how indoctrinated into social pressure to comply, to behave in certain ways we are until we start breaking it apart. And like, I'm struck by how many people, even just like a marriage, like have so many assumptions about what it means to be married like things like 
it, you know, the assumption that you have to live in the same place, that the female is responsible for certain things. The male is responsible for other things. Like all of these ideas of what does marriage look like? And I would say that for my husband and I, one of the most wonderful things about our partnership is the fact that we really have always defined our marriage by what we want it to be, not by what other people, like what, you know, what is expected of us. And I think that that is such, there's so much freedom in that, you know, and also like talking about just like that you should be jealous and the need for communication. I mean, just so many different pieces. I personally think dishonesty is actually much harder for human beings than multiple partnerships out in the open. And yet it's so striking how much the idea of covert, you know, keeping things secret, of Mm -hmm. being dishonest if we want to have, you know, if we want to be, even if somebody's attracted to somebody else, just the ways that that is so like baked into our society. Yes. And we're so shamed. We're so so shamed. And, and, and there's this belief that we should turn off our attraction to others and our spark, but that's what keeps us alive. That's what is the, the, you know, light within us. The passion is about connectivity and connection with others. It can look so different. And this is why I love the idea of relationship diversity, specifically how I talk about it in my podcast, which is not just putting yourself in the box of polyamory or monogamy, that there is this just beautiful spectrum of the rainbow that's between all of the different boxes or labels. And that when you are tuned in to who you are and what you really want, that you can design and take aspects of different structures to create who, you know, what your relationship is. I always talk about the equation as there is a unique individual with all of their past experience, plus another unique individual with their past experience, creating a unique relationship. How can you compare your unique relationship with all the others? And yet that's what we do. If I'm not in a relationship in the way I've seen I'm supposed to be, then I'm doing it wrong or I'm bad at relationships or I can't seem to make relationships work. Instead, throwing away those rules and really picking at what parts. So I'll tell you, like for me, solo amory, which I talk about as the most important relationship is with self. And some people want to be single. And it's very shamed as like something is wrong with you. If you want to be single, if you choose to be single. But I have found that specifically being an empath and an introvert, I have to have time on my own. Yes. Like it is imperative for me to be in the world, to have time on my own. Mm -hmm. And my partner's know this about me. And so that is a way that I have to find to claim the worthiness to say, I need an hour, a day, or whatever, how much time to be on my own. And that's how I'm bringing an aspect of solo Amory into my relationship structure and making it my own. 
Yes, yes, yes. You just, I just had a realization. I was in a, many, many years ago, I was in a poly relationship with, um, a, with, with a couple who had young children. And it was being in that family system that allowed me to realize that parenting was not for me, like having mm-hmm. kids was not, was not for me. And that there was a way in which I realized my need for space in that relationship in a way, because I had always sort of assumed that as an empath and as somebody who was sensitive, that I wanted to be intimate 24 seven, that I wanted to be with people all the time. And it wasn't for me, it wasn't until I was in my mid thirties that I really started to recognize how much alone time I need as an empath to really regroup and reboot. And my, my husband and I, he's also, you know, we both identify as ambiverts. We both need an incredible amount of time on our own. And the wonderful thing, and we tend to do a lot of orbiting of each other as opposed to necessarily like, you know, always being busy or always engaging or always being in conversation or always doing something. And when I was younger, I would have thought there was something wrong with that. Like I would have been like, why are you, you know, why aren't you being, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? But now it's like, I recognize that both of us, we, our needs for space are very combat compatible. Cause that's the other thing I've seen is that that seems like one of the biggest problems in a lot of relationships is when you have one person needs a lot of personal space and the other person needs a lot of intimacy, like, oh, what a mess that can be because each person is like, like, it's like, there's this idea of that's wrong or that's wrong when it's really just what do we need? So I right. love that you're the, talking about solo Amory as something we really need to honor in some ways, first and foremost. Yeah. And I actually believe that solo Amory and having aspects of knowing ourselves is the foundation of knowing what you want. We yes. create more fulfilling relationships. People who are scared or have trouble being on their own, I feel many times, not all the time, but many times are scared to look at what's going on within them. But I say in my podcast a lot, you have to know yourself to know what you want. You don't have to know the fullness of yourself because we're always evolving. We're always uncovering new aspects of ourselves. And to begin the journey of understanding who you are to know what you want in your relationships. That's the foundation. That is the foundation. And this is also like, this is such a big piece of what I teach in with empathic mastery is that we, you know, it's like before we can really have any real full understanding of, of ourselves as an empath in how we relate to the world, we have to know ourselves. It's like, we must recognize our baselines. We must recognize what we feel like in our body. We must. And so it always comes, I think it comes back to for both relationships and for any kind of empathic mastery, it comes back to this core principle of knowing ourselves. I mean, you know, know thyself. It's one of the, it, it, it is so essential because, you know, when we know ourselves, then we know what's ours, what's not ours. And we also know, you know, what are we being influenced by or swayed by either because of some trigger inside or need that's not being met or social pressure. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, you know, I was thinking about, as we've been talking, the other thing is 
you were speaking about the, um, sorry, my brain just decided to stop there for a second because <laughs> I'm thinking two things. I'm actually thinking, I'm, I keep on wanting to go back. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go back. Okay. I keep on wanting to go back to you, 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 the way you described your early childhood as you talked about, it seemed really good. And I was thinking as an empath, so often we will be sensing the undercurrent or the undertow. And I was wondering with the fact that there was clearly like, it sounds like there was a lot of keeping up appearances and everything looked good on paper in your family, but there was clearly something going on between your mom and your dad. As an empath, were you I mean, did this just completely hit you out of the blue or was there almost like sort of an unspoken undercurrent of distress that you were aware of, but just didn't necessarily know that this was what was going on? Yeah, it was a complete shock. Wow. And and therefore started something I've just been working on healing over the last eight months is this experience of shock in my life. Mm -hmm. Because I think now, you know, I have two kids, 14 and 10. So I'm watching from a different angle of what it is to be that age while I'm watching them take in the world. And I really think I was just so tunnel visioned. I just think I wasn't even, I knew that I was always creative. And my mother always talked about me being my own person. I'm my own person. You know, she's like, you were always, you knew what you wanted and you were, you always, you know, found a way to tell me. And I just think I was tunnel vision. I just think I was in my life, in my little world, not even thinking that anything was going on. And I will say that my mom just passed away about five months ago. And we've been uncovering a lot as we've been, you know, kind of cleaning out her stuff. And even, you know, without going into too many details, because I do feel that it's private to them. I think that as a 12-year-old, then a 14, then a 15, then a 16, then an 18-year-old, and even a 51-year-old, 52-year-old, I had a very certain way that that story sat in my subconscious. And mm -hmm. I am realizing through uncovering some things through uh, letters that she wrote that, that it was very different than I thought it was. And not necessarily in a bad way. It's, it wasn't necessarily like they had a bad relationship. I think there were parts of the relationship that she really thought was good too. And I mm -hmm. think that there were parts of the relationship that he liked. There were parts that didn't work. And I don't think that they communicated it. I just don't think that they communicated any of that very much. I don't know for sure because I wasn't there. Right. But it led to many experiences of shock in my life, deaths of my stepbrother when I was 16, he was 17, the death of my for, of Matthew, those were all very shocking moments. Yes. And I've been really working on that because the way that my mother passed, although very quick, uh, it was a very quick illness, was just enough time for me to feel like I had completion. Yes. And that was me healing that shock experience 
from 12 years old up into 53 to when this happened, you know, we knew that it, although it was very quick, we knew, I knew that this was my last birthday with her. It was like, my birthday was like nine days before she passed. I knew that that was very healing for me to have that. I knew that I knew the last time I was going to see her because I had to come back to North Carolina. She was in Maryland. That was very healing for me. So yeah, I I don't think that I was super aware or sensitive of anything, any of my empath nature until after the divorce. That was where my kind of my whole world opened up and I realized I was very sensitive and I was labeled as sensitive as yeah. well. Now, were you labeled as sensitive before the divorce or because I I'm wondering I was... if this was one of those events where it cracked you open and... Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I now it being, you know, 40 years ago, it was, I would never do it any differently. It was mm -hmm. absolutely the beginning of everything for me in terms of the work that I do and how I've lived my life. I do feel that in a way it cracked me open. However, I will say that I think I was born being, it was called more bratty or spoiled or, you know, those kind of words, Uh huh. emotional, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It was I mean, too sensitive. I, it's like, I, I did, I have like, I've had maybe three guests who were not told they were too sensitive yeah, as, as yeah. a child. Yeah. It, it was kind of blown off or, or I guess maybe, it was described because I was the youngest girl mm -hmm. and I was the only girl. So only at girl. first I was super spoiled because everyone fell in love with, oh my gosh, we've got a little sister now. I've got a little girl. My mom was praying for a little girl. But then as I got all the little girl stuff, it became she's spoiled and Maybe I was, but I also look at it as, you know, I knew what I wanted and I was able to manifest what I wanted, but I was also told that that was bad. And at the same time, the journey that I went through of then everything breaking down at 12 and now I don't really get anything I want and I'm going through a divorce younger than any of my brothers. It's affecting other functions and things in my life. Um, I think that was good. I, I don't, it was hard in the moment, but actually I think it really shaped who I am and I am, I am thankful for it. Being able to be thankful for all of the challenges. What an incredible gift that is. So Carrie, I told you we'd come to this point where I would say, essentially, I can't believe how fast the time has gone by. And every yeah. time I say this, I mean it. Yeah. Yeah. So three things. I'm going to ask the first one is what else? What just feels really, really, really important to share? Yeah. yeah. I love this question because I did an article for Authority Magazine about being a highly sensitive person. And the one thing that I would love to say is that the empath ability and the sensitivity is a superpower. It is. It is what yes. this world needs. We need more people to feel what other people are going through. If we are going to come together, I feel like we need to extend and, and develop our empath skills. It is a superpower. 
And I think it is also important. So the journey that I went on was understanding that I put a lot of my worthiness in my ability to take on other people's stuff. I wanted, after the divorce, I wanted Mm. peace in my house. I wanted peace in my house. So if I just took on other people's stuff, then it would be more peaceful. It's fine. I would just deal with it. And I spent probably the next 15 years doing just that. And then as I did that, and I experienced people specifically in the beginning work of my empath, you know, professional work, I experienced people feeling so relieved when they left my sessions or my friends feeling so good. I felt like crap. Yes. (laughs) I felt horrible. And then I realized that my worthiness was all wrapped up in my ability to take on other people's stuff and enabled them to continue in their dysfunction and in their wounds. Mm -hmm. So learning that my worthiness is just in who I am, that my empath, my empath abilities is a superpower, but I don't have to take on people's stuff. And in fact, it's better if I don't. Amen, sister. Preach. (laughs) Well, and just that whole idea of, you know, it's like we're the psychic sponge. You know, we come in and we just absorb it. And that thing of like everybody else feels better because we've siphoned off all their crap and we end up feeling horrible. I love that you've untangled and disconnected that sense of worth tied to our ability to basically mitigate other people's pain. The other thing I keep on noticing is that we have, you know, is that as highly sensitive as empaths, we feel better when other people feel better a lot of the time. And being able to know how to hold space for people's discomfort and just let it be okay that somebody's uncomfortable. But that starts by being able to be okay with us being uncomfortable. Yes. Oh my God. I love that you said that because I think that that ability to hold space for someone to really feel uncomfortable and bad and just like, and and hold it and say, I am here for you. I'm not going to take it on, but I am going to hold the space and love you and extend love to you and allow you the space to do that. Even just that creates healing for another person. Yes. Yes. I mean, in some ways, ironically, you were saying even that creates healing. In some ways, it's like that is what creates the healing, (laughs) you know, as opposed but we have such an idea that we're supposed to go in and intervene and find solutions and fix it. When so often, I mean, I will say as a healer and and a practitioner, the best work is when I can help somebody find their own answers, not when I give them an answer. Yes. Yeah. You know, that saying like, give a man a fish, he'll have a meal, teach a man to fish, he's fed for life. And it's like that ability to like, just be present with somebody and trusting in their truth that they have the answers within them. So powerful. Yeah. So next question this is an exercise I do at the end of most podcasts. And it's, I believe, the podcasts exist outside of time. You know, we record this message and it's mm-hmm. going to be on servers and people are going to be listening to it for hopefully many years to come. Mm-hmm. I believe that, that that as we broadcast this, as we record it and we broadcast it, we're like dropping a stone in the river of time and yeah. it ripples both ways. 
And so not only are we sending ripples forward into the future, there are ripples going back as far as we need them to go. And what I believe is that this broadcast goes back to a time in our life when we needed it. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to ask you is, we're going to send a message back to a younger Carrie. Mm -hmm. So my questions are, who are we sending it back to? How old is she? When and where are we sending it to? And what are you saying to her? And this is an opportunity to speak directly to her, not to say, I would tell her this, but to directly say, Carrie, you know, I love you. You are like, so what, so when, where, and what are we going to tell her? I love this question. And I see myself very clearly. I know exactly. I'm sitting on my sofa in my rec room. And I just had this really horrible accident where I cut off part of my finger in a Cuisinart. Oh, I, <laughs> I was making egg rolls and I don't know. I had an accident. My finger met that blade. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of stitches in my finger. I was in so much pain. And I remember sitting with my, this cast around my, my fingers and my friends were there, my teenage friends, and they were completely oblivious to the pain that I was in. It was not only emotional pain, It was also, you know, just like, it's not only physical pain, but it was emotional pain. I was still really deep in the divorce energy of my parents and they were really oblivious. And I see myself sitting there in tears, feeling so alone. And I would say to you, Carrie, that you will find your way. And that hold on to the sensitivity because this will become your superpower. And it's painful right now, but this is just the beginning of your story. Hold on to your superpower. Mm-hmm. Hold on to, and, and, and this, just, it may be painful right now, but this is just the beginning of your story. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a powerful thing. Yeah. Me and a mandolin had an encounter at one point. <laughs> Those blades are dangerous things. Yeah. As well as don't ever try to fillet aloe vera on your own, pulling a knife towards you, <laughs> away from you. <laughs> uh, nothing quite like that. Oh, so Carrie, final question. How do we get in touch with you? Mm. I love to connect with people and the best way probably to, I would love for people to listen to my podcast, Relationship Diversity Podcast. You can get to it through carriejerislow.com or relationshipdiversitypodcast.com. They will both go to the same place where you can access the podcast on your favorite podcast streaming service. And I'm also on Instagram and TikTok occasionally. TikTok is where I do more of my energy, intuitive work. Instagram is where I talk more about relationship diversity. But I also have a free relationship diversity guide that goes over the what relationship diversity is, how it can show up in your life, how you can really look at your life and design 
a unique structure for your unique life um, steps to do that. So if you connect with me through either one of those websites, you can get that sent right to you. People have told me that it's very helpful for them when they're just beginning the journey of questioning what they want in their relationships. Awesome. Oh, so Carrie, so basically check out the podcast and all of these links will be in the show notes, Relationship Diversity Podcast and Carrie Jarislow. And in case you're wondering about how to spell that, that's J-E-R-O-S-L-O-W. So Jarislow. Yes. So CarrieJarislow.com. Carrie, thank you so much for Aww. such a rich, potent, and just satisfying conversation. This has been awesome. Yeah, Jen, thank you so much for having me. I love this conversation and hope to do more of it. Mm -hmm. Right back at you. <laughs> As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to empathicmasteryshow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time, hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.